This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. And we do thank you that your word does reveal amazing things. Grant us now your Holy Spirit that we might see amazing things from your law. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. There is great injustice isn't there, in our world. We've just had, indeed, in the corporate prayer, prayers for our world. And our world is a place of injustice. We see it on a national and, indeed, a global level of countries that are really suffering from injustice here in Asia, but also in Europe and indeed in Africa and many other places. People are suffering because they have been unjustly treated, perhaps by governments, perhaps by communities, perhaps because of terrible floods and natural disasters, which we must ask, well, why do these things happen? They seem to be so unjust. And even in our lives today, we can see injustice. There is nothing that hurts us so much when we are unjustly treated. Perhaps that injustice has come at work. Perhaps that injustice has come in other ways, in education, at school, or indeed even in the family and in the church. And we do feel desperately hurt when we're unjustly treated. We believe that there's something seriously wrong with our world when there is no justice. But perhaps the most important question is, will the guilty ever be punished and the innocent declared not guilty or vindicated? But ultimately, this question of justice is focused upon God. How can any human being be declared innocent or just or not guilty in the law court of a holy God? And that is basically the big theme we're going to be having this morning for the second of our series on the Reformation. Um, You'll remember last week we started with a focus on the Scriptures being our only authority and especially focused on the clarity or the clearness of the Scriptures. This morning, if you like, is the content of the Scriptures And 500 years ago, the Reformation was very, very focused on the content of the Scriptures, and especially this question of how can any human being be right in God's law court? So I want to start by moving to the Bible, please. And if you would have open, please, Romans chapter 1, 
and we're going to be focusing just on verses 16 and 17. It would certainly help if you could have your Bibles open in Romans chapter 1. Now, let me just quickly put Romans in some sort of context. Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written, if you like, as an introduction to him and his ministry just before he visits Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire and indeed the most important city in the world in those days. Paul had never been to Rome before, so he writes this uh, extraordinary letter as, if you like, a bit of an introduction to himself and, above all, his preaching and his gospel as he goes to Rome. And then after Rome, he wants to go to Spain to do a mission in Spain. So we can see in chapter 1, first of all, in the first uh, few verses up to verse 15, his introductory comments on the church in Rome. And he longs to go to Rome in order to preach the gospel. And then he goes to, if you like, the theme statement of Romans altogether. If we want to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and it is perhaps the, one of the most important books in the whole Bible, then we need to understand verses 16 and 17. This is the key. This is, if you like, the theme statement of Romans. And you will see that Paul says something. He says, first of all, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here, if you like, that little diagram on in the handout might be useful. So if you like, the outer rim is he's not ashamed of the gospel. People could be ashamed of the gospel. People are ashamed of the gospel even today. After all, there are many other uh, the ways of living. But then he goes on, why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Notice what he says, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So he's not ashamed of this message about this man called Jesus who lived some time before Paul, and now he's bringing this gospel to this sophisticated, great, big city of Rome, because it's the power of God for salvation. But then Paul answers another question. Well, why is the gospel the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes? First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That's the non-Jew. Well, he goes on in verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So somehow in the gospel, that is the proclamation of God's uh, God's great news, the good news concerning Jesus Christ, that preach, that message, is the righteousness of God, is revealed. But where is that righteousness of God revealed? That righteousness of God, he says, look at the end of verse 17, is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, you will notice in your Bible that the words the righteous will live by faith are in quotation marks because it's actually 
a quotation from the prophet Habakkuk. So what Paul is actually saying is something very important. If you want to know the gospel, if you want to know the power of God for salvation, if you want to know what this amazing thing called the righteousness of God is all about, you need to understand the prophet Habakkuk. That is actually the key to Paul's gospel and the key to Romans. And because Romans is one of the most important books in the Bible, it's the key to everything. And yet Paul says this key to everything is actually written by the prophet Habakkuk so many hundreds of years before him. So we need to understand the prophet Habakkuk, because at the center of this circle, of you, which you will see in the diagram, is the righteousness of God. Do you see? The outer circle is the gospel, then you've got power of salvation, then you've got righteousness of God, then in the middle you've got Habakkuk, the righteous through faith shall live. So if you want to understand God's purposes and God's justice and how a human being can be right before God, says Paul, you need to understand Habakkuk. So let's try and do that. Let's very quickly, if you will, move to the prophet Habakkuk. He can be found in the Old Testament. If you move, and it's uh, in what we call as the minor prophets. Um, uh, we're not perhaps used to the minor prophets because we might think they're minor, but I'll say something about that in the moment. But please just move to Habakkuk chapter 2 and that first responsive reading we had of verses 1 to 5. Let me first of all explain a little bit about why Habakkuk is so important. Habakkuk is important because he's actually, if you like, one chapter in a book of 12, the 12 minor prophets. In Paul's day, in Jesus' day, all the 12 minor prophets were collected as one book, and this one book was as important as the prophet Isaiah. Now, I guess we're all quite familiar with at least parts of Isaiah, isn't it? Because he's the great prophet, isn't he? He writes so magnificently about the coming and the death and the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But actually, in Jesus' day and Paul's day, this book of the Twelve would have been almost as important as the prophet Isaiah. And at the heart of this, prof this book of the Twelve is the prophet Habakkuk. And the prophet Habakkuk is dealing with a very, very important question, a life question, which is important for us today. You see, the prophet Habakkuk in his day, this is, we're talking maybe about 600 BC, has a terrible, terrible situation. The nation of Israel was a nation, well, which had injustice and destruction and, uh, and violence and wickedness and, and intolerance. It was a terrible place of injustice. He's, and Habakkuk complains to God. And God says, well, actually, the injustice is going to become much worse. If you think things are bad in your country, O prophet Habakkuk, watch and see how there will be international injustice when the Babylonians, the superpower of the day, will come and destroy everybody and everything. And that's very, very contemporary, isn't it? 
crisis in the nation and injustice and world global crisis and injustice. It's a scary situation and we can relate to what the prophet Habakkuk is going through. And Habakkuk is angry and complains to God. God, this can't be right, he says. This can't be right. You're supposed to be a God of justice. And look at all this injustice in my country and around the world. There is injustice. And yet you're supposed to be a just God. Why are the innocent suffering? Why are the guilty not being punished, God? This is wrong, he says. And we all feel like that at times, don't we? We all cry out to God, God, my situation is wrong, it's unjust, it's cruel, I'm suffering. Why don't you do something about it? We do cry that way to God. And But what does God say? And this is where chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 are so, so important. Habakkuk looks to God and says, God, come on, answer me. Answer me, why is there so much injustice? And what does God say? Look at verse 2. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that the herald may run to it. The revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. What basically God is saying, look, what I'm about to say is so important that Habakkuk, you need to write it down. So that it's a permanent, enduring record. But it's not for you. This word is not for you. It's for the future. Something amazing is going to come in the future, which will mean this word comes true. But for the moment, well, you need to wait for it. Be patient. Now, that's a great message for us today, isn't it? When we see injustice in our lives and in the world. Be patient. God has written it down. Even if you think that it's not going to come true, just wait. Just wait. It will come true. Well, what is the key? What is God's message in a time of injustice? Well, it's actually verse 4. This is the absolute key. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. In other words, the unjust person is the arrogant person the selfish person, the self-centered person, the person who's self-righteous, the one who wants to justify himself. So how can a person have justice? Look at the end of verse, uh, verse 4. The righteous person, that is the one who's declared not guilty, the one who's declared innocent before the eyes of this holy God will live by what? Faith or faithfulness. That is, Habakkuk, if you want to see real justice, if you want to be declared right yourself, well, I'm giving you a gift today. Trust me. Trust me and everything will be okay. You will be declared right in the law court. And by the way, the wicked will be punished. Not today. The unjust won't be punished today. But one day in the future, says Habakkuk, and it's certain because I've written it down, there will be justice. But for the time being, live by faith. 
And that is the justice and the righteousness of God. That's what Habakkuk says. And if we turn back to Romans, that is precisely what Paul actually means. Do you see what he says if we are back in Paul? He's not ashamed of the gospel, that gospel of suffering and pain and injustice upon Jesus, because, well, that's the power of God. And that's the righteousness of God. Because the righteous will live by faith. You'll be declared right in God's law court because of a simple trust in Jesus Christ. And you will live in heaven. And because of that declaration, that's the power of God for salvation. And that's the gospel. That's what he is saying. And that is something I think we really need to hang on to and hold on to today. But you might say, well, if we want to move on, what's this then got to do with us today? And I say it's got to do with us today because what happened 500 years ago really helps us to understand. You see, at, if we move on, one more. Yeah, yeah, sorry, the previous one, sorry. There, lovely, thank you. The teaching of the Reformation, the, that period of 500 years ago. How can I find a gracious God? Well, for that, we need to understand one of the most amazing and remarkable stories ever told of God's goodness and grace. And that is the story of how Martin Luther, that monk, came to understand justification by faith alone. You see, Luther had a real problem, because in his day, people told him, well, the righteousness of God means that God is very angry with you. How are you going to stand, they said, in God's law court? How are you going to stand if uh, Jesus is very angry with you? When he comes back to judge, there's going to be wrath and terror and horror. God's justice means you will be judged and go to hell. Luther was very, very frightened of that sort of view. Because he thought, well... How am I ever going to find a gracious God? Because he had been told, you see, that the way to salvation, the way to being not guilty before God, was to do the best that you can. Do the best of what is in you. That is, do your best, and God will declare you right at the end of his law court. And we actually, even today, think that, isn't it? Oh, if I just try a little better, God will be, will be happy with me. God will be good to me. I.e. works. Maybe if we work, then God will let us off. But you see, the problem with that, as that Martin Luther understood, is that, well, what is my best? What is my best? Can I not always do better? 
So you see, he has had this enormous struggle and pain in his mind. You know, he would say, well, today I need to do, I need to pray for three hours a day. I need to go to Holy Communion today. I need to be nice and kind to everyone. And then he would go through these things one by one. And then he would say, well, today I've had a good day. I've actually been sinless today. And then he would say, oh dear, I've been proud and arrogant. So that means I failed. So whatever he did, he could not find a God of grace. Because, well, how could he be sure he'd done his best? And that is our problem today, isn't it? If we think we can please God by our good works, well, can we not always do a bit better? If we are supposed to do our best, well, what is the best that's going to be good enough for God? That was Luther's problem. So he was constantly running to 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 his teacher and saying, you know, today in the middle of the service, my mind wandered off the preaching. Or something, you know, oh, today I had, uh, while I was eating my lunch, I had too much to eat uh, of, of the meal. And his, uh, his teacher got so irritated and angry and said, Martin, come back when you have some real sins to confess like murder. Stop bothering me with all these silly old things. And that's us, isn't it? That's us. Where do we find a gracious God? And Luther studied these words in Romans and couldn't understand them because at first he thought, well, the righteousness of God, that's the righteousness that, well, God punishes us with. But he kept on studying Romans. And he kept on studying it in what's called in a little tower. And if we go to the next slide, we'll be able to see. Um, this is not quite the tower, but it would have been something like this. This is actually one of Luther's study. So we've been sitting there in that chair on the table with an open Bible. And he prayed and prayed and meditated upon God's word, these words from Romans. And this is what he says happened. He says, I hated the expression, the righteousness of God from Romans. For through the tradition and practice of the teachers, I had been taught to understand it as the righteousness through which God is just and punishes sinners and the unjust. But I could not love the righteous God who punishes. I hated him and indeed silently even blasphemed against him. But I pondered all the time, day and night, until I paid attention to the context of the word. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then I began to understand the righteousness of God as a righteousness by which a righteous man lives as a gift from God. That means by faith. I realized that it was to be understood this way. The righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. Namely, it is not, in, not, so, not something we do, but something we receive, through which God justifies us through grace and mercy. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered the gates of paradise itself 
through open work gates. Isn't that wonderful? When he studied this word, he felt that he had been born again and entered the gates of paradise itself. That is the moment where the whole world changed. That is the moment that the gospel, if you like, was rediscovered, that Luther broke through. And that is the discovery that has actually changed the world. That is the reason, by the way, why we're here today and we believe in justification by faith alone. And that is ever so important. Why is it important? Well, if we go to the next slide, we'll go through. You can read the rest of it uh, in the handout. But basically, we've got a number of different things. And this is just to summarize. Basically, Luther thought, studying Romans, and that actually means the rest of chapter 1, that God is angry with us because we have broken God's laws. And sin is not just, oh, well, we've made a few mistakes and we can do better. Sin is so terrible that we, it's a slave master. We're in slavery to sin. We're so self-focused and self-centered and selfish that we think that we can be right before God by our own works and our own goodness and our own niceness. We automatically, human beings, think that we're good people. I've never ever come across anybody who thinks that they're a really bad person that is before conversion. We have this tendency to think, hey, I'm right. I'm good. Of course God loves me. I'm lovable, aren't I? I'm a nice person. You know, I've never murdered anybody or done anything much wrong. So I must be going to heaven. But Paul says the law of God tells us that we're sinners in the hands of an angry God and that sin is so serious that we're actually trapped and in chains and in prison to sin. And the heart of sin is that we think that we're right. We think that our goodness and good works can get us to God. And that is the heart of sin. Now that, said Martin Luther and the other Protestant reformers, is a terrible, terrible position to be in. That is the position of the whole of humanity. That we have broken God's law, not just simply on, on a few little things, but broken it so that we're actually rebels in the hands of God, a just God. And we cannot save ourselves. And the most terrible sin is the fact that we think that we can save ourselves. What then comes? It is this phrase called the imputation of righteousness. Basically, you see, justification is a matter of the law court. Imagine now that we're all in God's law court at the end of the day, on the day of judgment, that we're all basically having to stand before Jesus Christ. And imagine that the recording angel, the angel comes up and says to each and every one of us, 
Jesus Christ, here's a DVD of everything this person has thought and done and felt throughout their life. You put it in to the system. Would any of us like that DVD to be seen? I certainly wouldn't. But that will be seen before the entire universe. And what can be the verdict? The verdict can only be guilty hell. But what happens is that Jesus Christ himself says, but dear God, my father, look at the DVD again. And now there's another DVD and it's played. And it's a DVD of, well, us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That DVD actually shows us that we're, oh, holy, perfect, kind, good, holy, all the time, 100% perfect. Because, well, Jesus Christ has given us his righteousness, goodness, holiness, kindness, grace, mercy, and love. So actually, in Christ, that DVD will be great news. Not because of ourselves, because God our Father will see Jesus Christ in us and us in Jesus Christ. That is what's called the imputation of righteousness. How can that happen? Luther said, it's, well, faith is a gift of God. It's not something we do in ourselves. It's something that God gives to us as a gift. We don't choose God. God chooses us and gives us this gift. And faith grasps hold of Jesus Christ. What matters in faith is not the spiritual experience or the funny little feeling, but the fact that it says, I want Jesus Christ. It's an empty hand in which God puts Jesus Christ. And we say, yes, I want Jesus Christ. Luther compared faith to the wedding ring. Now, all of us who are married have the wedding ring, yeah? And Luther said, well, it's the wedding ring. It clasps and grasps your partner. Because for Luther, well, Jesus is the husband of the church. The church is his wife. And faith is that wedding ring. So in faith, says Luther, we, the bride of Christ, give Jesus all our horrible, evil sins, and he pays the punishment for it on the cross. And he, being a kind, good, righteous, and wealthy husband, clothes us in his goodness, kindness, love, and perfection. So that's faith. We go on. But what does that mean for us today? What it means is that in God's law court, we are not guilty, righteous, and indeed 100% perfect but let us not forget, we're also sinner at one and the same time. Our experience here on earth is still that of desperate sinfulness. Do, let us not think, said the Protestant reformers, that we can actually be 
be righteous 100% perfect in this life. No, we will never get away from sin in this life. But in heaven, we are declared perfect and not guilty. That's what that means. And then you might say, yeah, okay, I can get this row. I can get this from Romans, what Paul says, from Habakkuk, and indeed from Luther and the other reformers. But, yeah, but, you know, what about good works? Does that mean I can continue to sin and the good works have no place in the Christian life? If it's all by faith, and if faith itself is, you know, a gift of God and it's all about grasping Jesus Christ well then I can just go on sinning in my life and I'll still go to heaven at the end of the day not so says Paul and the the rest of the Bible and indeed Luther he says imagine a tree a, a fruit tree a good fruit tree will bear good fruit a bad fruit tree will bear bad fruit isn't it um and we have many lovely fruits I've, I've, I've experienced now in Asia. Um, I had indeed my first taste of durian earlier this year. And very nice it was too. But from what I understand is that, uh, is that there are good durian, uh, good durian and not so good durian. And you know, we know that from fruit, isn't it? Some fruit tastes absolutely delicious and the others we might say, well, it's not so good. And Luther said, well, that is the picture of the human being. A good fruit tree, one that has been made good, declared good in Jesus Christ, will bear the good fruit of good works. So if you trust in Jesus Christ, it is faith that will motivate your good works. Love for Jesus and thankfulness to God will mean that you will automatically, by the power of the Holy Spirit, want to do good works. But, on the day of judgment, it's not our goodness that will count, it's Jesus Christ's goodness that will count. That is basically what it means. You might say, well, that's all very interesting. We've been through Habakkuk, we've been through the Apostle Paul, of thousands of years ago, now we've looked at 500 years ago, but what about us today, Ro? What about us in Singapore, in this church, in our lives, in 2017? I feel so guilty about the fact that I can't be a good Christian, that I, that I seem to annoy so many people, that, uh, that, the pe- that, I, uh, that I have my own standards, I can't even meet my own standards. I feel guilty. And what about the problems of the whole world, the injustice of the whole world? Well, there are two key things we learn as application. If you could. Application? The first is humility. That is, it's absolutely central to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we know that we're sinners and that there is nothing we can do to improve ourselves. You remember that Habakkuk, that Habakkuk passage? What did, uh, what did God say about the wicked? They are puffed up. They're arrogant. They think they are good people. So actually, 
this doctrine of justification by faith alone tells us, well, we're beggars. We're utterly hungry beggars. We're in prison. We can't get ourselves out. And that's a good place to be. You see, many people think Christianity is, well, we think that we're better than everybody else. Not so. Not so. Christians, real Christians, know that they're not good people, that they're bad people. But we are like beggars who tell other beggars where to find bread. The bread of life, naming, naming Jesus Christ, isn't it? So let us not think in our lives or in our church that, well, basically we can actually, God must give us good things. That we deserve good things in this life and indeed eternal life because we're good people. Rather, the Bible's teaching is that of humility. We deserve nothing, but we thank God for his kindness, goodness, love, and grace. That's the first thing we learn. That works do not justify, and we cannot be proud. But there's a second thing that is absolutely important, and that is assurance and confidence. You see... Those who are born again, those who understand that we are right before God, in God's law court, by faith alone, have peace and assurance and confidence. We know where we're going. We know that we have somebody who stands for us. We know that on the day of judgment that the Sentence will be not guilty, and even more, that God the Father will say, Come in, my beloved son or daughter, because I see Jesus in you. So what does that then mean for all our problems? What does it mean for us then when we're treated unjustly and badly in this life? Perhaps at work, perhaps in our families, perhaps even in the church. It means that there will be justice at the end of the day. And we can be confident. We don't need to feel guilty. If we have committed sin, we know where to go. The cross of Jesus Christ. If people accuse us and point the finger at us, we know where to go. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we even are physically ill and our life is going to end, we have some life-threatening disease, what will, what, what will that matter? No. We can be confident that even if we die, it will be okay. Because God will let us into heaven. Now that means we can be happy and joyful and rejoice knowing that Jesus Christ has done it all in his local. So, and this is now a question for everybody, whether you're this morning a Christian or not a Christian, to end with. Something to think about as we end. 
if we were to die tonight and Jesus asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would we reply? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing doctrine of justification by faith alone. We thank you for the confidence and the peace it brings to our troubled hearts that when we are unjustly treated, we have a just judge before us. And because of Jesus Christ and through faith alone, we can be sure that on the great day when Jesus Christ returns in glory, we will be found not guilty, we will be found wholly innocent and righteous, and enter into eternal life and peace and happiness forever and ever. For his glorious namesake. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.